and welcome to the Double Double. My name is David Dixon and it's Thursday, August 12th. Hope everyone is doing well. Coming up today on the podcast is another episode in our mini series here of coaches taking over programs, entering their first years at particular schools. Coming up today is the new head women's basketball coach of Kenyon College, Grace Elliott. Really, really fun conversation we had from earlier this week talking about her playing career, not just in college, but professionally overseas, how she got into coaching, and really what drew her to to Kenyon, and kind of how she's going about thinking about and planning uh, this upcoming season with Kenyon, what sort of her philosophies are, talking a little bit about offense and uh, coaches giving up some of the reins on offense. I found that really, really interesting. Overall, just a really, really fun, interesting conversation. Uh, and it was really fun to learn about what's going on at, at, at Kenyon and some of the things that she has planned for the upcoming years there. So uh, I'm going to hit the music, and when we come back is my conversation from earlier this week with Grace Elliott. Joining me today on the Double Double is a special guest, the new head women's basketball coach at Kenyon College, Grace Elliott. She began her college career at Adelphi University, where she started for two seasons before transferring and graduating from Ramapo College in New Jersey. After one year as an assistant at her alma mater, she continued her hoops career across the pond where she played for Newcastle in the United Kingdom. She restarted her coaching career shortly afterwards, joining the staff at Division Three Powerhouse Amherst College for one season, and in 2019, she was named the head women's basketball coach at Rosemont College, where she coached one of the best Division Three scorers in the country. In April of 2021, she was named the new head women's basketball coach at Kenyon College, where she, where she is preparing for the start of her first season. I'm thrilled she's taking the time to join me today. Coach, how's it going? It's going good. Thanks for having me, David. For sure. So sort of as we always like to start here on the show is where did you grow up and kind of how did you first start to play and kind of fall in love with the game of basketball? Yeah, so I grew up in the suburbs of Detroit, Michigan, um, and I kind of my love for basketball started, you know, pretty young. I was around, I would say like eight years old. Um, I was always the tallest, still always the tallest person, um, so <laughs> It was either it was going to be basketball or volleyball. Um, so I kind of played a little bit of both um, growing up, and it just ended up being basketball that um, that I liked the most, and I've been playing playing ever since. So um, it just happened to be the sport that I chose. I was tall. Um, I have a you know I'm in a basketball family. My brother played at Albion. Um, which is a Division three in Michigan, mm-hmm. um, and he's a year older than I am, but he's let's see, I'm six one and he's six seven. So oh, wow. we got the height, we got the height in the family. Yeah. Sure. So one of, you know, that's really interesting to hear that, you know, multi-sport athlete, volleyball, basketball, because so many kids nowadays specialize super early and really young. I, on my high school team, I was one of two guys on our high school team who played another sport, another varsity sport as a senior in, yeah. in high school. What did you get and gain out of playing multiple sports growing up yeah I think I I really just like to keep busy I'm, mm-hmm. I was always the one I should join into everything um, I played lacrosse too so oh, I was wow. a three-sport athlete in high school um, and it was just a way for me to 
for me to be as social as possible. Right. Um, so I had, you know, three separate groups of friends um, for each season, and it kind of kept me in line with school and everything, too. It really taught me time management, um, and I think it was great to play, you know, multiple sports um, just because, you know, I was able to work on different things with different sports like basketball. I was able to work on my vertical and lacrosse. I really worked on my footwork. Mm-hmm. Um, so it all, you know, it all helped with basketball in the end. For sure. And it definitely helped with basketball. It's Adelphi Division Two. is It's a scholarship school. Sort of what was yeah. your recruiting process like? Why did you end up choosing Adelphi? And can you kind of shed some light on just Division Two basketball? Because so many people just think, oh, it's D1 or nothing. And then think about Division Three And D2 is kind of lost in the shuffle, even though it's an insanely high level of basketball with some crazy good players and crazy good teams. Yeah, for sure. And honestly, early in the recruiting process, I really didn't know too much about Division Two or really Division Three for that matter either. It was just kind of like D1 or, or nothing. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was actually one of the assistants at Adelphi that saw me at a tournament and I really connected with him. Um, and he basically kind of got me to go to Adelphi. I knew I wanted to go somewhere further away from home. I hadn't really ventured out anywhere outside of Michigan too much so I was ready to experience something new and just the idea of kind of being close to New York City was really cool for me right um and I wanted to go somewhere where I could you know get some playing time um and you know also just have like that whole student athlete experience um so that's kind of what ultimately led me to to going out to New York for school and then, and then you had like a second recruiting uh, experience when when going from Adelphi to Ramapo. Kind of what went into the, the decision to transfer, and, and you know why Ramapo? Besides just the fact that it's also close to to New York City. Yeah. So um, my decision to transfer mostly came from just the um, the fact that I was further from home. Um, I was, you know, going from Michigan to New York was a big step. And, you know, being so far away, I was at more of a commuter school rather than, you know, a school where everybody's on campus and you really get that college vibe. Um, And Adelphi is a great school, great basketball program, um, but it just wasn't the right fit for me. Mm -hmm. So that's what ultimately led to my decision to transfer. And then I actually had a friend that was playing at Ramapo. Oh, nice. um, Because I didn't really know too much about the school. Um but I knew about it through her. So she's kind of, um, she kind of led, led my recruiting process there <laughs> as far as introducing me to the coach and getting me out to their campus, which I loved. Um, and it ended up being just a better fit for me, um, both academically and athletically. So, And then basketball-wise, because people think that, you know, people who don't know anything about Division three basketball think that, like, uh, anyone can play and that's like the club team. I think Malcolm Gladwell said something about that, about like Williams a couple of years ago. That's just like the club team. Anyone who wants to play can, can play. No division three basketball is a really light is a really high level, but there's major differences between the scholarship level and division one and division two versus mm-hmm. division three. So just what were some of the key differences in your experience of playing at both levels from the practice time, the uh, facilities, uh, amenities are just, what it's just like playing at a different level of basketball. Yeah, so I think, I mean, it was 
most shocking to me that there weren't as many differences as I thought there would be mm-hmm. with, you know, going from a division two to a division three school. The facilities were just as nice. Um, it was just competitive, if not more competitive than, you know, what I was getting out of Delphi. So there really weren't too many differences. You know, the timing of things, you know, the time commitment was a little bit um, less than what I had at division two. Um, but at the same time, it was just, you know, it was just as competitive. I think that's like the biggest, you know, misconception is that you play at Division three. It's, you know, like a club sport, which isn't the case at all. Um, you really do get the full experience of being a student athlete at Division three, which yep. is kind of what led me to want to coach at that level. Um, but I had a great experience playing at Ramapo and, um, you know, it was super competitive. I was able to really prosper there. And, um, you know, it ended up being, you know, the best decision for me. Um, and, I mean, Division three, you still have a chance at winning a conference championship. Yeah. You still have a chance at winning a national championship just like you would at any other division. So, um, yeah, I think it, it was great for me. So you, you've mentioned a couple times now that proximity, especially to New York City, was something really appealing that, that, that happened both at Adelphi and from Rampo. While you were in college, were, were, were you sort of drawn to – New York for the professional opportunities that you can sort of do anything in New York City in terms of career wise or in college did you always kind of have in that back of your mind that I kind of want to stay in basketball and and coach yeah so I mean really early on when I was in the recruiting process before I you know went out to Adelphi I wasn't really thinking about coaching that early on Mm -hmm. um I was thinking you know there's a lot of job opportunities in, you know, New York City. You know, I like being in, you know, close to a city um, just because that, that was comfortable for me, you know, having a city close by. Um, it wasn't until actually playing at the Division Three level when I decided, okay, I want to coach. Um, so it was kind of before then, I was kind of all over the place. I was like an exercise science major, and then I was communications and journalism, um, and now I'm coaching basketball. So right. <laughs> um, I was a little bit, a little bit scattered, but that's just that's just how I am in life. So, so, but then how did you go from okay, you're playing at Rampo, you graduate, kind of what led you to want to stay at Rampo to, to to start your coaching career there, and then also just was it weird coaching your former teammates now? Yeah, so um, that was the biggest reason that I decided to stay at Ramapo and start really start my college coaching career um, was the head coach who's currently still there now, um, who was my coach when I was playing, um, Mike Einaker, and he, you know, he still serves as a mentor to me. But I knew that I would be able to learn a lot from him quickly, mm-hmm. and I basically knew he would be willing to take a risk and take a shot on me like you know not having too much experience um so you know it was really great that he was able to give me that opportunity and give me that responsibility early on um you know which really you know I learned was able to learn a lot from him quickly you know in a year just doing a lot of observing my first year there um not too much hands-on stuff right away but I was just you know able to observe him um, and the way he coached in his style, and it, it really helped me a lot and really made me come to the decision that that's something that I wanted to do for a career. Um, and as far as, you know, coaching 
players that I, you know, played with, um, it wasn't too, it wasn't too difficult making that transition just because I was a captain. Mm -hmm. Um, and I felt like, you know, I had that respect already from them, from being a captain. Um, so I think that made it a lot easier when it came, when it came to coaching them. Interesting. Now you sort of did this in, in reverse when, in terms of continuing a playing career, as most people continue playing and then, and then get back into coaching. But how did you find out about the Newcastle team or, or get the opportunity to, to keep playing after you had started coaching already? Yeah. So, I mean, I kind of had my mind set on, you know, continuing coaching after coaching that year at Ramapo. Um, but I did have a friend that was playing, you know, overseas in the same conference um, as Newcastle. Um, and she's the one that told me about the opportunity. She said, you know, Newcastle's looking for, they need two Americans. Um, they're looking for a post player. Uh, send him your films, send him your highlights and your stats um, if you'd be interested. And I'm thinking to myself, well, it's been a year since I've played competitively. Um, but at the same time, I was like, you know, this is an opportunity that comes every day, um, you know, getting the opportunity to live, you know, in a different country, uh, which I hadn't really had the chance to do. Right. Um, so I had to jump on it and it ended up just, it happened, you know, pretty quickly. Um, me, you know, just like deciding to move out there. So it was pretty spontaneous decision, but it ended up being, you know, great being able to play over there, just experiencing a different kind of lifestyle. Right. Um, and being able to just explore Europe was, was great. Um, but I only ended up staying out there for, you know, a year. I could have stayed longer for sure. Um, but I was kind of eager to get back into the coaching world. Right. Um, I didn't want to stay out of it too long. Um, so I was kind of ready to come back um, and continue it. Were there any sort of culture shocks going across to, a, as you said, a different country and you're also in a completely new city. Newcastle is a really nice city, but Northern England, you're not really in like that London area that we all think about in terms of like the biggest yeah. tourist spots, but you're actually in like the country, like not just doing the tourist hotspots, but living there for full time. What was that sort of like? Yeah, so it wasn't, so everybody speaks English. Right. Um, so that wasn't, um, that wasn't hard to kind of acclimate to that, but it definitely just, the way they live is definitely different um, than it is in the United States. So that was definitely, that was interesting. And I was also getting my master's degree out there. Okay. Um, so I was going to classes too, and just their style of learning was a lot different than what I had been used to in my undergrad. Mm -hmm. um, so kind of getting adjusted to that and then getting adjusted to the more of like the European style of playing basketball right. of me coming in, you know, thinking I'm going to be a post player, but then my coach is telling me that he wants me to be more of a combo guard. <laughs> um, it was definitely shocking, um, but it took some getting used to, but I definitely learned a lot and I actually took a lot of, you know, that style of play and kind of put it into what I do now, um, you know, coaching in the States. And so what's interesting too is, so you always wanted to get back into coaching and you come back and you go from a professional team to a powerhouse of Division Three women's basketball in, in Amherst where I think my first two years at Wesleyan in the NESCAC, the women's Amherst team, I think won 60-some-odd straight games in a row. Like, yeah. there's There are legitimate expectations of undefeated seasons. 
what was that sort of like transitioning back into obviously you're used to a high level of basketball but now dealing you know how to deal with it as a player dealing with those super super high expectations but what was it like now as a coach transitioning back into it with the with these new uh expectation level yeah so i mean i was really lucky to get that opportunity at amherst and you know i knew i wanted to coach at, at that point at the division three level and that was pretty much the best gig assistant gig I could get yeah. um you know with the being at a powerhouse like like Amherst and learning um you know under GP Gramacki um you know was a great a great opportunity for me so it was it was awesome that I was able to able to get that job and you know transitioning um you know from Ramapo to playing overseas then to Amherst it was, you know, completely different than everything that I was used to. Right. Um, as far as, you know, being at such a high academic selective, you know, school, um, you know, the recruiting style is different. The style of play is different. The coaching is different. There's just so many different things that um, I wasn't used to, but I was able to kind of learn quickly. Um, and Coach Gramacki kind of, he gave me a lot of responsibility, which was awesome. Um, so I was kind of, just learning by doing it was a lot of you know trial and error mm-hmm. um but you know it ended up it ended up being great for me because I was able to gain so much knowledge in that year that I was there that it gave me the confidence to even apply for you know head coaching jobs because after that year with him I felt like okay I could you know I can have my own program I can be a head coach so um that you know that year at Amherst was definitely eye-opening for me as a you know a young coach and so when you say that you felt ready because after that year you become the head coach at Rosemont College as well as the the school sports information director but just what do you mean by you felt ready to to be a head coach yeah I feel like because I got um because coach Mackey you know gave me so much you know responsibility you know, when I was assistant at Amherst and he let me be very hands-on with everything, um, you know, I felt like I was, you know, ready to to jump in and kind of put, you know, all of these things that I've learned both at Ramapo and at Amherst and with my playing experience, um, kind of put everything to the test a little bit and see, you know, um, if I can run my own program and if I can get a head coaching job. So, um, I was pretty eager and excited to um, to start with that. So once you got to Rosemont, which is just which is very similar to to Amherst, small school, Northeast. What was that adjustment like going from assistant coach to head coach? Where now you don't, you don't just have the responsibility; you, you're not just being given a lot of responsibility. Now you have all the responsibility, and you're handing out <laughs> responsibility. Right. Yeah. So. Um... You know, obviously, there's a huge difference of being an assistant and being being a head coach. So, um, I, you know, I knew that was going to be, you know, a transition for me. And just coming in as a, you know, as a, both a head coach and a brand new head coach, um, you know, there was a lot kind of on my plate. Um, and, you know, the kind of having the responsibility of, you know, building a culture and getting kind of a team on the same page as I am, you know, with having a new coach, um, there was definitely a lot, um, a lot that I had to do. Um, but you know, it was, it was definitely had its moments. It was difficult, 
but it's something that I kind of knew going in, um, mm-hmm. and it wasn't nothing was a surprise to me. So I kind of okay. knew what I had to do um, going into the position. So that that made it easier. So much time is spent too on when you take over as a head coach. People always talk about recruiting, recruiting, recruiting. Oh, you have to get players. You have to get players. But so many coaches talk about that the most important thing that they do is hiring out their staff, hiring a great assistant, because that that is what makes such a great program is when you have to hire out assistant coaches at well. What goes into hiring assistant coaches on your staff and, and kind of how did you go through that process at Rosemont? Because there are dozens and dozens of people who were just like you four years ago who were trying to break into coaching and probably sending you dozens of emails a week. Right. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, a good, really good assistant is hard to come by. And it's something that, um, you know, every head coach wants. They want they want a great assistant yeah. that's going to kind of be loyal to them and, um, you know, be a hard worker. And I, like you said, I, I want somebody that's like me, you know, how I was at their at their point in time and you know I was so eager to learn and you know I was ready to kind of just overcommit myself to the job and really put in the work and just you know realize that it's going to be a grind um but just really be passionate about basketball um and about coaching at the division three level which Mm -hmm. is just what I really you know um that's what I look for in an assistant um it's not always easy you know especially you know being at a school like Rosemont you can't offer an assistant too much yeah um so that makes it a little bit difficult but that's why like I said you need somebody that's really just wants to be in it wants to be given that opportunity and is willing to you know maybe take a pay cut or willing to you know be you know work part-time um you know, just in order to kind of get their feet wet and get, you know, get an opportunity in college coaching. And then also, can, can you kind of expand, too, on what does a Division three assistant coach do for their responsibilities? Because when you watch a Division one game or a professional game, there's more coaches and people behind the bench than you can count. And they all have very, very specific roles. But, like, if you watch a Division three game, at most, at most, there's three assistant coaches. So what is so what do you do as a division three coach? Like what are your responsibilities? Right. So um like you said, it's not it's not division one where you have, you know, one coach focusing on recruiting, one coach doing social media, one coach, you know, doing travel. Or um or, or even one coach for each player's player development. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. So um it's it's not like that. Uh but you're able to you are able to kind of divide up some responsibilities if you have you know a couple of assistants but at the same time as a d3 assistant you definitely get to be more more hands-on um and it's more of well i with my assistants it's more of a collaborative you know environment staff environment Mm -hmm. um so i like us to be kind of doing the same things working together um to do them um, I like my assistants to be hands-on and to have the opportunity to learn, which is what I was able to do as an assistant. So right. I like to give my assistants that same that same opportunity. Now, throughout your first season, you know, first seasons are always tough. Every, you know, most coaches, once they reach a certain point, think back to the first season, wish they could do 10,000 things different based on what they know 20, 25 years later. What was that season like for you? Because I'm sure every single day you were learning something new. 
Yeah, and it was a lot. We had, you know, my first year at Rosemount, we had a, um, a small roster. Mm-hmm. Uh, we dealt with injuries. Um, you know, we were dealing with a lot. There was a lot of adversity. So a lot of it was just, you know, it was more keeping the team together and keeping them in good spirits and, you know, boosting their, you know, the team morale. It was more so that than the X's and O's. Right. Um, we were just trying to, you know, keep it together and try to, you know, build like just build that culture where we, you know, have that team chemistry. We were all on the same page. Um, we were just trying to build that. And, you know, by the end of the season, it, you know, really started to come together. You know, we started to come together as a team. We started really playing together and um, the team got a lot closer. And, you know, you could tell that they started to trust me as their coach. But, mm-hmm. Um, you know, it took a little bit to get there and we had to go, you know, we had to go through some obstacles and through some adversity to, to get to that point. And you mentioned the adversity, the basketball adversity. Little did we all know we are year one ends end of February that a few weeks later, real world adversity was going to hit and the whole world was going to fundamentally change seemingly overnight sort of when did you first learn about the coronavirus and kind of when did you become aware of what Rosemont's plan was going to be to send everyone home? Yeah, so, you know, I've been, you know, watching the news a little bit and just hearing about it and, you know, seeing things on Twitter. Um, So it was kind of, there was a lot of unknown for a while as far as, you know, what are other schools doing in our area? Mm -hmm. Um, you know, our school is going to be closing. What are the high schools doing? Um, there was just, there was a lot of unknowns going on. Um, but this was, let's see, I think the spring season was just starting up. Um, and I think it was just like one, one day we all got an email to kind of basically pack up our desks and just head home until further notice. Mm -hmm. Um, And I was thinking like this was going to be maybe a week or so, but it ended up, you know, obviously extending um, for a longer period of time, but there was still just a lot of unknown as far as, you know, when are we coming back? Um, Are we going to be, you know, working remotely? There was just, there was a lot of, um, there was a lot of unknowns. There were a lot of questions, you know, among, among the department. So, um, it was definitely a, it was an interesting time. And then now once all your players were, were sent home, like every college, every college student was sent home in in that March period. How did Mm -hmm. you feel your role change as the leader of the program? Now that not only was everyone facing these real world challenges, but basketball, what wasn't on the horizon, there wasn't a clear point of that. It felt like a next season could, or, or would happen? How, how do you feel, if, if at all, your role change as the leader of the Rosemont program? Yeah, so, um, because so many things were unknown, I didn't really feel at that point as my role had really changed. I was still being, you know, the same way with my players as a leader for them, um, kind of just making sure that we were all communicating with each other, um, making sure that I could answer any questions that they had, um, and just kind of, you know, still being the same way, having our team, our team meetings, but doing them virtually, mm-hmm. um, and just making sure that we're all on the same page, but that would be, you know, what I would do 
even if we were, you know, on campus as well. And at that point, you know, I had I had no idea that we wouldn't have a season right. um, because I didn't know how long any of it was going to last. So in my mind, we were still having a season and we were going about as normal as we could, you know, thinking that we were going to be preparing for, you know, a season in the winter. Yeah, and that was something, you know, it's all happening in real time. You don't have all the data. You don't know how, you don't always know how things are going to play out or what's going to happen in the future. And college had to make insanely difficult choices last August about what they're going to do for the fall. Detensified campuses, bringing everyone back, not back, virtual, and what to do about sports and particularly indoor sports. Is that more and more evidence came up that about indoor transmission? Sort of when did you learn that Rosemont was trending towards and then eventually going to decide not to compete in, in basketball in the 2020-2021 season? Yeah, so it it was starting to become, you know, clear when we weren't getting too much um, direction on, you know, how practices and lifts would look, you know, in the fall um, and even like an open gym. Um, Mm -hmm. everything was pretty much, you know, closed down for anything inside. So, um, because it was like that for such a long time, it started to seem like, okay, if we're not able to, you know, practice indoors, you know, there's no way we're going to be able to, you know, play indoors. So, um, and that was tough because there were, you know, teams, you know, in our conference that were, you know, able to, to be inside and were, yeah. you know, planning on having their season. Um, but it ended up, uh, we ended up hearing from our conference, the CSAC, that there would be no, no in-conference competition or championships um, and that it would be an institutional decision whether, you know, we would be having a season or not. And we, you know, we did wait um, a while before hearing that, you know, we weren't going to be doing anything um, and we would have to um, kind of talk about, you know, uh, some type of practice schedule if we were allowed to have one and what that would look like as far as, you know, practicing in pods um, or um, just kind of getting, working up and progressing to anything contact. Right. Um, there was there was a lot that kind of went into you know what we were going to be able to do as far as practicing goes, but um, yeah. So once we learned that we weren't we weren't going to have any games, um, that was tough, and we just wanted to be able to get at least get on the court together um, and try to make things as normal as possible. Yeah. So while the NCA punted the decision to conferences, and then the conferences punted it to the schools, almost. The NCAA did give a uh, did make one decision for all of college sports, which was they gave that blanket eligibility waiver to everyone uh, for that COVID season. So in effect, just purely athletically, it was almost like this universal red shirt year. So what type of stuff were you able to do with with the team, if if at all, to help them get better athletically uh, during this year, and also just you know give them an outlet for something at school with all this craziness happening of that they play college basketball because they really like college basketball because they, they really like playing basketball. So, so, so how did you kind of right. balance, Hey, we're going to get better because eventually we're going to have another season while also just, it's an insanely stressful time. Basketball can be a great stress outlet as well. Yeah, for sure. And that, that's what was most difficult. Um, we did, we were able in the beginning to, 
you know, get into the gym um, in pods. Uh, so we had, you know, a couple players per pod um, doing non-contact, uh, you know, skill development type of things. Um, they were, you know, able to do some strength and conditioning stuff outside. Mm-hmm. Um, and there ended up being, you know, a couple of hiccups where, you know, we weren't able to be back indoors. So it was pretty, there was no consistency with any of it, which right. which is what made it really hard. Um, there wasn't like two consecutive weeks where we were able to, to work out together. So a lot of it, um, you know, a lot of what I had to do was just making sure, you know, everybody was in good spirits and, you know, knowing that they would get a chance to play at some point in the future. We just don't have a specific day to give them. Um, but know that, you know, things will will get better um, and, you know, keeping, you know, their spirits up in that regard. But it definitely was it was difficult to do, um, especially when we weren't, you know, able to get into the gym consistently. So in April, after this crazy year school year that we all went through in april you're named the new head women's coach at Kenyon college which similarly to, to rosemont is a really small school sort of what drew you to what drew you to Kenyon and in, in, in just that small college environment yeah um so Kenyon is probably more similar to amherst yep um which is you know, a school that I really enjoyed working at. Um, so applying for Kenyon, I was, you know, really intrigued by the conference um, that Kenyon is in. The facilities that Kenyon has are amazing. Um, and it's in the Midwest, which is a little bit closer to home than, yep. than I've been in the past. Um, so that was kind of, that was a nice thing for me to be able to, you know, apply somewhere that would, that would be a little bit closer to, to home for me. Um, so, so that was great. And so Kenyon being it's in Ohio, more of the Midwest, maybe just because I'm from the East coast, but I didn't really learn about Kenyon until I started going through the recruiting process and really towards the, once the college counselor started talking with like, Hey, this school you, you, you probably haven't heard of. It's super small. It's, it's in Ohio. They're a really good school and, and you should take a look at it. And then once you do, all those things that you mentioned jump out. So when you're out recruiting this summer, how are you selling Kenyon and, and trying to get the name of the school out there as it has a lot of really, really great things to offer, but in terms of the name recognition, it may not be currently at the same level as some of the other Division three like-minded academic schools. Right. Yeah. So just, you know, being able to kind of, you know, explain the school and what we're about at Kenyon to recruits is really important. So being able to get on the phone with them is key mm-hmm. um, because a lot of like you said, a lot of them don't know, don't know anything about Kenyon. Yeah. And then once once they hear more about it, they're like, oh, OK, well, I want a high academic school. Well, I want to be, you know, in a college town where, you know, a lot of the students are living on campus because we're 100% residential. So, um, you know, you're able to to really sell the school once you, you know, are able to have those initial phone calls. And then, you know, I always say, you know, when they come to the campus, the campus really sells yep. sells itself um, because of how nice it is and, you know, our, our elite, you know, athletic facilities. Um, 
you know, I think it definitely, it's definitely a, a great campus to visit. Um, so I think that, you know, getting them, getting the recruits out to campus is key, but really being able to, to tell them about, you know, how great of an education you can get at Kenyon um, is key as well. Yeah, I don't know a single person who, from, from my high school, the years ahead of me, below me, who chose to go to Kenyon, who didn't really, really like it. But it was, it was yeah. but it was just getting that that name out there. And so when you're doing this recruiting this summer, you know, Zoom sort of took over all of our lives in the spring of 2020, summer 2020. In the Division Three, are you, you're, you're obviously going and watching tournaments and everything, but is recruiting still phone calls, texts, or is a lot of it, hey, let's get on a Zoom and I can sort of do a virtual campus visit where you can see some of the things that I'm talking about? Yeah, I would say it's a mixture of the two. Um, you know, when you know, at Kenyon, you're able to recruit more at you know a national level. You can mm-hmm. recruit kids from everywhere. So it seems like if I'm recruiting someone, you know, someone from California, we may be doing you know more of like the zooms and the texts and the calling. Um, but if it's someone from you know the Midwest or even you know someone from Pennsylvania that's able to you know drive the six hours down to see to see campus, um, you know, we're able to do visits in person. So, um, you know, it's definitely a mixture of both. And even the ones that are coming to campus, we still keep in contact, you know, with FaceTimes and texts and calls. Um, so it's definitely, it's definitely a mixture of both. Um, and yeah, so we're able to do a little bit of everything as far as, you know, how we recruit. So in terms of on the court as now, as you're preparing for your first season, with the program, Kenyon's coming off this really strong five-year run. They did not compete last year during the, the COVID cancel season, but now you have a chance to really mold this burgeoning, pretty successful program. What types of things are you looking to, to implement in the program from either sort of a culture standpoint, a playing style, uh, just like what are you looking uh, to do with this program? Yeah, um, well, I'm really excited. I have a really big group of seniors. I have eight mm-hmm. seniors. Oh, wow. Um, yeah, so I think the biggest thing, you know, they've been coached by the same coach for, you know, their whole their whole careers up until now. So it's definitely a big, you know, change for them. And I think just getting them to kind of embrace the change is going to be key. Um, and I think, you know, something that, I want to implement with the team is kind of being able to play with a little bit more freedom um, than they're used to. Uh, the team is used to playing with, you know, a lot of structure. Mm-hmm. Um, so I want them to be able to kind of be able to read and react to the game a little bit more um, than what they've done in the past. Uh, but it's definitely all about kind of getting everybody on board um, with the changes that are going to happen. Um, but I'm definitely excited about it. We definitely have an experienced team. Um, so I think, you know, we have a chance to be really successful this upcoming season. And, and can you expand on that sort of that freedom offense uh, sort of mentality? Because that's like this buzzword in Basel right now is, you know, the Warriors and all these teams, freedom, you know, read and react. But just but just for people who don't really know what it means is hear all these people talk about it. Like, what does it mean to have like this free flowing offense? Yeah, um, I think it relies a little bit. 
that type of offense relies a little bit more on, you know, the IQ, the basketball IQ of your players rather than, okay, we're in this set play. You need to be in this spot. Mm -hmm. Um, It's, you know, there's a little bit less instruction from me as their coach. um, And it gives them, it gives them that freedom to be able to, you know, come down the court and they see that, you know, they have a mismatch somewhere and knowing, you know, I need to clear everybody out of the paint. Um, being able to kind of read it that way and not have, you know, not thinking like, okay, I have to, we're running this play, I have to go here. Um, so there's a, going to be a little bit less structure. And so I've noticed, you know, a lot of coaches can be can be control freaks. They, they want to control every single thing about it. I'm remembering in the men's Final Four run, the Gonzaga-UCLA game, Gonzaga's trying to play this free-flowing offense and Mick Cronin for UCLA is trying to, if he could, he would call a timeout after every pass and explain what the next thing to do was. So how do you, yeah. as as a coach, trust your players and give up your control and kind of let them read and react and do what they think is right, even if, of course, they're humans, it's basketball, they're going to make mistakes and not do everything perfectly. Or, right. or make the read that you would make if, if you were playing. Right, yeah, and that's, you know, that's always difficult because, you know, sometimes I want to get out on the court and do it myself, and <laughs> I know that I can't, I know that I can't do that, but I'm a little bit less of a control freak. I want my players to, you know, feel, you know, feel confident on the court, and I want them to feel like I can trust them, which is why I give them that freedom, and mm-hmm. which is why we run, you know, a little bit more of a fluid offense, um, because I want them to feel like I have that trust in them um, so that they can have that trust in me in return as their coach. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think it's really important for them to, to be able to, um, you know, have that trust from me and play a little bit, you know, more loose on the court. Um, and I think that's, I think it's more fun to play that way. Um, I liked playing that way as a player. Um, and at the end of the day, I want them to have fun with it and they should be having fun with it. I think that just, you know, goes with you know the whole student athlete experience you want them to have a good experience playing um so that's kind of what i strive to do as their coach another sort of buzzword that that you use a couple times is culture right everyone talks about culture culture that the patriots win because of their culture and then so and so loses because of their culture but culture is this it can mean in in an infinite amount of things for different teams different groups sort of how do you view culture and kind of what's what type of culture are you going to try to to create with the Kenyan program yeah um so the way you know I see you know our culture is just kind of like our foundation of just how we are as a team um and you know all being on the same page and being able to compete in practice is really big for me Mm -hmm. um and that's what the the type of culture that i want to build um you know here at kenyan is a culture where you know all of my players are holding each other accountable you know both on the court and off um and they're able to hold me accountable as their coach right um and i have to be able to hold myself accountable too because i have to be able to you know admit that i'm making a mistake and i think if your players you know are able to see that then they're realizing that it's okay if they make a mistake too. Um, so kind of, you know, just all of us being on the same page is the type of 
you know, culture. I like a very competitive one um, and one where we can all hold each other accountable. So you're still a pretty young coach, still early in your career. And the NCA has all these very strict rules about what coaches can and can't do in the summertime. If a player, if, if a player on one of your teams wants to become a better jump shooter, they can go out and shoot as many jump shots as they want or possibly can in a day to improve their jump shot. But the NCA says you can't improve your in-game coaching because you can't coach AAU. So kind of how do you try to improve your own coaching ability in the summer while dealing with these NCA rules about when and, and how you can coach? Yeah, um, I'm all about, like, learning from other coaches. Um, you know, I love being able to even, you know, watch a high school practice or watch an AAU practice. Um, I, you know, like being able to kind of develop my coaching um, by doing that and, you know, watching certain drills, whether it's on Twitter or mm-hmm. whether it's through, like, the WBCA. Um, just kind of being able to kind of look and see what other people are doing and, um, kind of get new ideas from that. Um, and I'm lucky enough to have a lot of friends that are also college coaches and us kind of being able to do a little bit of like chalk talk with each other and just right. kind of go through different scenarios and come up with different ideas is always nice. Um, I love talking about basketball. I love talking about coaching. It's, it's pretty much my whole life. So mm-hmm. um, I'm lucky enough to kind of be able to do that and be able to develop um you know, in my coaching skills, you know, in the summer. Now we just, the, the basketball, the Olympics just wrapped up two gold medals for team USA. The NBA season just wrapped up. The WNBA season is right in, in the thick of it. Now, how do you watch basketball nowadays? Can, can you be like me and sit back as a fan and marvel at Giannis's 50 point performance in the finals and want them to test him for like alien blood of just like how amazing he is. Or is that coaching part of your brain always on that? If you're watching the Olympics, you're rewinding a baseline out of bounds play to make sure you got it. Cause like you have to try it on October 15th. <laughs> yeah. So it's definitely hard to turn it off. Um, the coaching thing and kind of being able to watch, you know, I love to watch the game um, mm-hmm. at all levels. So, you know, it's not like I'm constantly, if I'm watching an NBA game, I'm not constantly, you know, re- rewinding to see yeah. something, but I do like have still have it in the back of my mind. I'm like, Oh, you know, that was it. That, I liked what they did in transition there. You know, there are some times where I do, you know, rewind it back. Um, or I do, you know, like go on YouTube and Google what they're doing. Um, to you know see it again because sometimes it ends up you know being something that I want to you know implement in in what I'm already doing so um I definitely that's just something you can't turn off you just always kind of watch it from you know a coach's perspective coach really appreciate the time so far we're going to wrap up the podcast with five rapid fire questions sure number one what is your favorite drill for your teams Ooh, good question. Um, let's see. I like uh, what we call like war rebounding. Um, really, any rebounding drill I like. Is that from your post career? So that's from actually my time at Adelphi. I'm sorry. I I I, I, I meant post player career. Oh yes, yes, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Who is the best player you've ever played against? Ooh, that's a good question too. 
Um, so she was my teammate, but we played against each other in practice, and she was probably the best close player that I played against, um, Jess Kittress. Um, okay. I played uh, on the same team as her at Adelphi, and we battled it out in practice, but she was definitely the best close player that, that I've seen. Your biggest pet peeve as a coach? Uh, biggest pet peeve, I think, is bad body language. Okay. Um, if I see, you know... <laughs> you know, a player like slouching on the bench or, you know, with their feet up on the chair um, or just even in the game, if they have bad body language, it's something that I do not like. <laughs> your favorite part or uh, your, your favorite, this is a two-part, favorite part about living in England and the most underrated city that you went to outside of England? Yeah, so my favorite part about England, which you probably wouldn't hear from anybody else that lives in England, is the rain. Um, <laughs> it, 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 um, I like the rain. Uh-huh. It, it's like every day in England is pretty much overcast. Like yeah. it looks like it's going to rain. Um, it definitely rains a lot. Um, so that's definitely my favorite. Interesting. Yeah, it's 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 one of those things where when you watch, you know, you getting into like the soccer and stuff from the Euros. Every game, it's like, how is it raining every single weekend? <laughs> right. If you could, yeah. Now, and you said my favorite city. Yeah, favorite city outside of England. If if you're able to, to travel throughout Europe. Yeah, um, my favorite city is definitely um, Lagos in Portugal. Okay. Um, you know the beaches are beautiful. The food is amazing. Um, it's just a, a beautiful place. Yeah, people in Portugal always look so happy. Yes, yes. Last question here. If you could change one rule about college basketball, what would you change? Um, That's a good question. I think I would go back to the one-and-one on free throws. Okay. Um, I like that. I think it made made the game more fun. Um, And now it's, you know, it's the two free throws. Um, But I do like the fact that we can advance the ball, so that's awesome. Um, But I do wish we we would go back to one-and-one. Yeah. The advance the ball rule needs to be universal. High school, middle school, AAU. Yeah, I agree. It's just just so much better. All right, Coach. I really appreciate all the time. As always, on the double-double, give the last word to our guests. You really want to say or shout out to the people in the community of Kenyon College in Gambier, Ohio. Yes, so thank you for having me, David. And I'm so grateful for everybody at Kenyon, and I'm really excited to – to have a season and to you know coach these young women and to meet people in the Kenyan community. Um, so I I am full of excitement. I'm really eager to, to get going and get the ball rolling. The season will be here before we know it. Yep. Best of luck this season, Coach. Thank you. That'll do it for this episode of The Double Double. If you like this podcast, find us on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast, where you can subscribe, rate, and review. Five stars would be much, much appreciated. Also follow us on Twitter at DBL underscore DBL podcast. We'll be back next week. Take care and make it a great day.